Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, alone this time. I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast Christopher Lane. Uh, Christopher is a University Distinguished Professor of International Affairs and the Robert M. Gates Chair in National Security at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. And I invited him on the podcast to talk about his recent article in Harper's co-written with Benjamin Schwartz titled, Why Are We in Ukraine? So Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for asking me to be on the show. So I was hoping we could start with a meta question. Um, I'd like to hear what you think about the debate about Ukraine, both in terms of what policy officials and the general public have said, but also about how IR scholars have been approaching the issue. Well, that's a that's a very good question. Um, I, I think if you want to understand the reaction of scholarly community, and I don't want to give your listeners too much of a, a deep dive into the divisions within the field of international relations. But basically, um, I think most of the American foreign policy establishment and most of the scholars in international relations tend to be of one of two camps that actually overlap, um, either liberal internationalists who believe in uh, the, the so-called rules-based uh, liberal international order, which is actually the order that the United States established after 1945, so it really is American hegemony, or the neoconservatives who you believe that America should be a polar hegemon. So both, both of these camps, for reasons that overlap, um, believe in the assertion of American power. They don't like regimes like China or Russia that aren't democratic. Um, so I think that, you know, in, in the American scholarly community, that most of the opinion would tend to be very anti-Russian. And if you want to talk about the Sino-American relationship, also very anti-China. Now, that being said, there is a subset of scholars in what we call a security studies field of international relations. And here there's uh, sort of, uh, at least among a fair number of scholars, a much more nuanced view. Some of us realize that precisely because the United States has been so assertive in its leadership, so assertive in maintaining the Pax Americana that was established after 1945, and so eager to divide the world between, as President Biden has done, hearkening back to what the Truman administration did in 1945, dividing the world between good states, the ones that have our approval because they are, or as Ukraine illustrates, at least we say they are democracies versus states that are considered to be autocracies like China and Russia states that we do not see as good actors. So, you know, I think that my, my 
bottom line on answer to your question is that probably the, the overwhelming majority of scholars throughout the international relations community generally in academia and think tanks are very much behind uh, U.S. support for Ukraine. But within this community of security studies scholars, there is um, a, a group that really realizes the dangers of the U.S. Over, overreaching, uh, the dangers of confrontation with Russia, dangers of confrontation with China. So there, there are these views out there. Um, we, we certainly get traction in, in, in some places, um, but it's, it's hard to win this battle uh, because uh, – well, I mean, it's an imperialist field from the beginning, I would argue, IR, you know, when it arose in the in the 40s and the 50s, it was absolutely linked to U.S. hegemony. And I think it's interesting because even when you take someone like Mersheimer, I mean, Mersheimer is very much pro-confrontation with China. So, I mean, I think as someone who's who's been in the field, you know, I think it's it's almost exceedingly rare to see anyone who, who, who argues for a position of restraint, really. I mean, you, everyone talks about the realists, but the realists are really only anti the U.S. engaging in peripheral theaters like the Middle East or, in this instance, Eastern Europe. But, you know, uh, most of the time they do support confrontation with China, you know, whether they're terming it offensive realism or not. It seems like it's a, ultimately a pretty imperialist field. Well, now that's a you know very interesting point, and I'm glad that this is coming up in discussion. You know, I have to say, um, on a personal note, John is a very dear friend of mine. And all of us who've been sort of lumped into this, quote, restraint, unquote, camp, how did that come about? Well, it came about because we were all opposed to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Again, we saw these as... Uh, Cases where the United States was was overreaching, extending itself militarily into areas that were really not vital to our interests, and more to point, the kinds of wars which we should have learned but apparently forgot about the lessons of Vietnam were not ones that we were likely to win. Now, you're absolutely right about John and on China. And this is what I find sort of uh, an interesting contradiction in, in the restraint camp. We, we talk about the need for restraint when it comes to Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, Afghanistan and Iraq um, have been costly in many ways, but they have been walks in the park compared to a war with China. And there aren't very many people who are in favor, however, of restraint when it comes to China. Which is absurd to me. I mean, I wrote, a, I actually wrote a Harper's um, front page article, not front page, <laughs> cover story last year, where, I mean, it's just absolutely absurd to think the United States is going to be able to remain hegemonic in East Asia or to you know, borrow a term that you helped make fam famous, offshore balance. It seems completely fantastical to yeah. me that this is going to be something possible in the next you know, 15, 20 years, maybe earlier. And I just don't quite understand how people dedicating their lives to studying IR don't see this. And I think it's because ultimately it's an imperialist field. Like there's just no way getting, there's just no getting away from it. No, I, 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 you know, we can quibble over what, what characterization to use, but yeah, you know, I wrote an article on foreign affairs a couple of years warning of the 
looming danger of great power war. Um, I actually had a very long piece in the, believe it or not, in the Chinese Journal of International Politics, uh, where many American scholars have been asked to contribute, including John Mearsheimer. And, uh, you know, I made a pretty impassioned argument that the U.S. Uh, needs to accommodate the rise of China rather than pursue this policy, what we call it, containment. But ultimately, I think the Chinese have a valid point when they say that the U.S. is trying to prevent their rise as a great power. And I think that's a yeah, very- It's obvious and it's wild that people deny that. <laughs> of course, that's what the U.S. is doing. Look at, their, look at where they're placing their uh, forces in the island chains. It's absolutely obvious that's what they're trying to do. And it's, it's just sometimes just in, when, I'm, when I'm around D.C., I just want to like- jump off a bridge because it, it seems like I'm living in a different reality from what is actually going on. And there's this constellation of forces that basically impels people to support what I think is fair to say is an imperialist foreign policy. Well, you know, there, there are a lot of historical parallels. And I guess it was in 2014, I was a, a visiting fellow at the Norwegian Nobel Institute, and they had their uh, summer conference that year on the Sino-American relationship, and they invited a number of people, um, people whose names I know you'd realize, uh, pardon me, recognize, like Steve Walt and Bill, Bill Woolforth and uh, some others. And the papers were published in a, a volume that was uh, uh, published by Oxford University Press, I believe it was released in 2017. And my paper, as my foreign affairs article, as my Chinese international politics journal article, all have been you know, very strong pleas for you know, understanding great power politics and the need for restraint, the need for prudence, and uh, the need in the Sino-American relationship for accommodating China. And I'm very impressed by the historical example of the Anglo-German rivalry before 1914, um, which Paul Kennedy has written or wrote in 1980, an extremely, extremely good book about. Um, the British were sort of taken aback by this rapid rise of German power in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, just as we've been taken aback by the rise of Chinese power. And part of this was, yes, the balance of power was changing adversely to uh, Great Britain in the Anglo-German relationship. But also a lot of it was ideological. The British believed in all these wonderful liberal things that we believe in, like democracy and the rule of law and uh, free markets and free trade. And, and the oppression of millions of people in the Raj and elsewhere throughout the empire, of course. Let's not forget that. <laughs> but, but they saw Germany as you know, a jackbooted militarists. Uh, they saw Germany as a nation that practiced mercantilism rather than free trade, and by doing so was threatening Britain's uh, own economy. So you see a lot of the same kind of ideological reactions um, in part of the Washington blob uh, to China that, that the British had to the rise of, of uh, German power. And yet there was a debate in the British Foreign Office about how to respond to, to Germany. And yes, you have this 
very famous Sir Iyer Crow, who um, was passionately anti-German and wrote a famous memorandum called The German Danger. But his boss, Lord Thomas Anderson, wrote a counter-memorandum pointing out, well, this is how rising great powers behave. And if we don't find a way to accommodate them and live with them, we won't like the results. And I suppose by 1914, August of 1914, uh, Sir, Sam, Sir Lord Sanderson was, was proven correct on that. I don't think that anybody would want to repeat or should want to repeat going down the path to a great power confrontation uh, that could lead to conflict. And maybe American policymakers don't really think that it could lead to conflict, but I'll tell you what, um, Ukraine should have shocked them out of that. Um, and we should be thinking very seriously about how we find off-ramps and find ways to live with the rise of Chinese power. And if you go back you know, to the debates that, that well, wasn't really even a debate, to the ideas that emerged after the end of the Cold War, particularly as expressed by Charles Krauthammer um, about the unipolar moment, with the U.S. left as the only superpower in the international system. But I wrote a book, um, this published in 2006, called The Peace of Illusions. It's about the, the origins of American policy, post-World War II policy. And it was clear, even as the war was being fought, that American policymakers had this vision uh, of a post-Cold War world, post-World War II world, in which the U.S. would essentially be a unipolar power. Now, it didn't work out because the Soviet Union got in the way for 40 years, but um, ultimately it did work out. And I think American policymakers and the foreign policy establishment, they, they like this idea of a unipolar world. And to me, it's just amazing the disconnect between the reality of what the world is like today and this belief that the U.S. is still living in a unipolar world. I completely agree. That that was the major piece of my Harper's um, argument last last year was that it's just absurd. But I think I think why don't we go a little bit because now we're talking about the '90s into your article on Ukraine, and maybe you could take us through this story about NATO expansion, which again it boggles my mind. But people seem to deny that NATO expansion was a key factor in what's been going on in Russia, not only since its invasion of Ukraine or going back to 2014 with Crimea, but for the last 30 years. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, I think that's one of our, our arguments, and uh, Ben and I are working on a follow-up article where we are going to elaborate this point, um, uh, which I guess we're going to publish in the American Conservative. And there is a historical record, and the historical record is very clear, that even as the Soviet Union was breaking up, Soviet leaders made, including Mikhail Gorbachev, made it absolutely clear that NATO expansion would be perceived as a threat to Soviet and then Russian security interests. When the Soviet Union collapsed, Boris Yeltsin made the same point over and over again, that taking this Cold War alliance, which is what NATO was, this alliance that really, for all the fine words that NATO posts on its website about what its mission is, 
His ultimate mission was always to assure U.S. dominance in Europe geopolitically. And now the United States, under the Clinton and the George W. Bush administration, decided to take this Cold War alliance, this Cold War anti-Soviet, anti-Russian alliance, and expand it right to the borders of the former Soviet Union, and then ultimately onto the territory of the Baltic states that were formerly part of the Soviet Union itself. And in Washington, the belief was, oh, this isn't a threat. And if it is, Russia is now so weak that we don't really need to listen to them. They just have to accept what we're doing because they're too weak to object to it. And of course, uh, everybody should be familiar with um, Vladimir Putin's speech at the 2007 Munich Security Conference, where he picked up the threads of the arguments from Gorbachev and Yeltsin and made it very clear that NATO expansion was a threat to Russian security interests. It's a point that had been made over and over and over again since the breakup of the Soviet Union. And the United States just didn't listen. I mean, you have silly comments like uh, that were made during the Clinton administration. Overnight, oh, NATO expansion isn't a threat to Russia. We're not doing this to threaten Russia. Um, I don't know if you've seen this morning's Wall Street Journal, but I, I just thought, um, and this sort of comes into play both with uh, our, our failure to understand why China feels threatened by the fact that we're constructing an alliance of, like the one with uh, with the Quad, with India and Australia and Japan, that we're maintaining um, this advanced presence of American military forces in the Western Pacific. But China shouldn't see this as a threat, just as we would say Russia shouldn't see NATO expansion as a threat. So the lead story in the front page of the Wall Street Journal, I'm just going to read the first paragraph. China and Cuba are negotiating to establish a new joint military training facility on the island, sparking alarm in Washington that it could lead to the stationing of Chinese troops and other security and intelligence operations just 100 miles off Florida's coast, according to current and former U.S. officials, unquote. So the shoe is on the other foot now, right? I mean, the United States is so apparently sensitive to, to this, but why don't we understand why the Russians would feel the same way about the advance of a hostile alliance to their borders? Why? Well, let's actually pause on that for a second. Why don't you think we understand? Is it just American solipsism? Isn't the Protestant sense of mission baked into the country? Is this this desire for hegemony that's been emergent since at least the late 1930s, if not earlier? Is it this unipolar moment? Why is something so obvious not accepted by the U.S. foreign policy establishment or indeed many commentators? You know, I think I would check the box, all of the above. Um, you know, there was sort of a coherent foreign policy mindset, which, as you point out, was sort of the foundations for it, emerged even under Theodore Roosevelt and especially Woodrow Wilson. But it did crystallize during and especially after World War II. So the U.S., 
believes in the right things, democracy, free trade. We should be the ones leading the world. Any state that doesn't share our, quote, values, which were always asserted to be universal, even though it's obvious that they aren't. So I always ask students in my class on American foreign policy, if our values are so universal, why do we have to fight so many wars to get other states to accept them? Um, the idea that, that our values are universal and that they're right and that states organized politically with other systems are troublemakers. And this is why Americans, American foreign policy establishment loves regime change. Because the logic is if certain kinds of regimes are troublemakers in international politics, well, the way to create peace and stability is to get rid of those governments, i.e. regime change. So I think there's a strong ideological impulse. I think there's a strong hegemonic impulse. I'm not using that as a pejorative term. So you know, the United States wants to be and has wanted to be for a long time, this isn't new, the, the dominant power in the international system. We love unipolarity. I mean, as, as one American policymaker was quoted anonymously in a New York Times story 10, 10 or so years ago. We love unipolarity as long as we are the uni. And you know, I, I think that there's, there's just this blind spot, this inability to understand that other states can have their own view of what their interests are in the world uh, that is not signed off on by Washington, D.C., Others. Which is, I mean, I think it's worth pausing for a second because that's such an obvious point. And this is why, even though I've devoted myself to international relations, I mean, the last few years, frankly, I just find myself bored with the discussion because you're talking with people who basically have nothing interesting to say or have nothing interesting to even think. So you're stuck on this treadmill of the U.S. making the same goddamn mistakes over and over and over again with absolutely no possibility for change. And it just makes the whole field broadly defined, whether we're talking the field of U.S. foreign policy, intellectual discourse, the beltway, the blob, whatever you want to talk it, or even, frankly, security studies, kind of boring and not intellectually stimulating because these are such basic points that if you're not even able to talk about these very basic points, what, what are we even doing here? I want to share, uh, I think it's a, a story that's right on point, and it's a true story. Um, for some 35 years or so, I had been a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a very token member. And during that entire period of time, never once was I asked, to be on a Council on Foreign Relations study group. And then twice in the last two years, I was asked to be on study groups, one on uh, U.S.-Taiwan relations and the other on the pivot to Asia and U.S. strategy. And being part of these groups and listening to what was said during the question and answer period when people would chime in with their opinions, I was talking to a very good friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about the phenomenon of groupthink in the foreign policy establishment. And I conclude, I told him, groupthink doesn't really convey what happened in these, these study groups. It's unithink. It's just like, you can only think one point of view. There's only one answer to these questions. And you know, I was actually appalled by the uniform hawkishness of the people who were on, at least the ones who spoke, 
um, who were on these study groups. And to the point where, you know, you could sense the, the mood in the house, so to speak. And that I just, it, it would have been futile or my favorite word, fruitile, both fruitless and futile, for me to have spoken up and said, well, wait a minute here, you guys are, and women are promoting the policy. It's going to take us down the war, road to war with China. Don't you want to sort of step back and take a deep breath and think about whether that's where you really want to go? The answer is I don't think they do want to, or even feel the need to step back and take that deep breath. Are they not that smart? I mean, like, are are they making that much money? Like, what is going? It's so boring. I couldn't imagine doing this day in and day out. Like, it's mindless. What do you think that is? It is. I, I interned actually at the Council on Foreign Relations in college, um, and I, I'm not sure how uh, federal an institution it was back then. But like now, those institutions just seem so atavistic and boring and they have no influence and it's just wild to me well yeah you you have a lot of people who live in sort of a closed environment um if you look at the people who work in the think tanks in washington that are considered to be important influential you know these people they all go to the same schools they all go to the same seminars they probably all ate at the same restaurants and belong to the same clubs. And they go in and out of government and they come back to their think tanks. And there's no fresh air, so to speak, intellectually. I, they, they live in an intellectually incestuous environment. But it's more than that. Um, you know, I, again, my, the, my friend that I was talking with about this the other day made a good point. So, well, look at our press. Um, and look at our press, the way it covers issues like China and, um, and the Ukraine war. Even the media, the quote, quality media, um, as the British would call, call, I'll call it the, the newspapers that we think of as the important sources of record in the United States, the New York Times, but also the Washington Post. Also, um, the Wall Street Journal. On the news pages, forget the op-ed pages, that's different. But on the news pages, you would expect to see objectivity. But after a while, you sort of develop uh, the ability to read between the lines. And a lot of times, you don't even have to read between the lines to see the bias in the way these stories talk about Russia where they talk about the Sino-American relationship. And I think that's, um, that's worrisome. And why is that? My, I, I said to my friend, why, why is that? Why do they, why do they just fall in line behind the foreign policy establishment? They're journalists. They should be asking hard questions. Well, my friend said, well, if you're a journalist and you want to get to the top, you want to have access to policymakers for interviews, for off-the-record comments. Well, how do you do that? If you're too critical, you won't have that access. So I think there are a lot of career incentives. And for scholars, look, um, there are lots of great conferences um, held in really nice places, especially in Europe and now increasingly in Asia. Um, but look at the people who are invited to them. 
critics of American foreign policy generally don't get invited to these places. So you're sort of taking yourself out of these the opportunity to go on these nice junkets and stay in great It's such a lo- little reward. I mean, I like I've been on these things. Who cares? They're so boring. <laughs> I just don't get it. Like I'm I'm just so I'm so disgusted might be too strong a word, but I'm disenchanted with the field. Like I, I, I look forward to the next 20, 30 years, 40 years of doing this. And I can't imagine how I would possibly do this. It is just mind numbing. It is mind boggling. And again, it's sort of this closed environment. It's a closed loop intellectually. Uh, and I, I think it's not unfair to use the term intellectual incest. So what would it take to, to change this? Oh, this is something that IR scholars and historians uh, often talk about. What would it take to bring a fundamental change in, in the policy, long-term policy of a great power? And I think most historians, at least, would agree, well, some sort of significant economic setback or defeat in a war. Well, the United States had, um, we had the financial crash in 2008. We had Vietnam. We had Afghanistan and Iraq. And foreign policy hasn't changed. <laughs> so I don't know what it would take to, to change American policy, but I know, know that I worry. The other thing that attracted my attention as I was scanning the news sources today, it's a story in, in Reuters, where apparently uh, the nuclear threats are being in the Ukraine war are being ratcheted up. The Russian defense minister said that if um, the Ukrainians use these new long-range weapons um, that they've been given by the U.S. and Great Britain to attack Crimea, that they would respond by taking out the leadership nodes of the Ukrainian government and that the Russians also made it clear again that if they feel that they're backed into a corner, they'll use nuclear weapons. And I think this is one thing in, in our article that Ben and I feel very passionately about is that American policymakers don't really seem to understand the nuclear risks of the policy that we're following in Ukraine. I think that Almost the last time nuclear weapons were used, well, August 1945 by the United States. And since then, no one else has used them. And uh, scholars have developed this term, the nuclear... Well, except, except on like the Marshall Islands, destroying local ecosystems. Well, used in a conflict. And, <laughs> and they've used it in a colonial domination system, but yeah. But I just think it's important when we talk about nuclear weapons to actually highlight these things have been used and they have had effects on the world. Not to be like moral, but it's true. It's just who are they used again, you know, all those things. You know, the thing that, you know, that we worry about in security studies is the use of nuclear weapons in war and what that, and we should all be worried about that. But We've developed this idea since 1945 that there is a nuclear taboo that, that people understand, policymakers understand, that you just can't, can't use these weapons because they're too dangerous. There's the fact that mutual assured destruction worked during the Cold War, and we assume that it will continue to do so. And so there's this great complacency. 
And notice now, you know, Putin has said, uh, Vladimir Putin has said a number of times, and other Russian officials have said a number of times, that there are certain things that the U.S. and NATO should not do in the Ukraine conflict. And if they do, they'll cross a quote-unquote red line, and the Russians might be forced to use tactical nuclear weapons. And, of course, a lot of those red lines have been crossed without any Russian retaliation, which just enforces the complacency. But I do believe there are bottom line issues that would result um, in the use of at least tactical nuclear weapons by the Russians. One is if they were faced with the possibility of losing Crimea. And the other is if their military uh, suffered a dramatic collapse and it looked like um, that the Ukrainians were going to win, a, Ukrainians were going to win a decisive military victory. I mean, I think for us to rule out um, the idea that, that the Russians do have certain lines beyond which they cannot be pushed um, without resorting to nuclear weapons, for us to ignore that, I think is really, really dangerous. And, um, you know, once tactical nuclear weapons come into play, if they ever do, I don't think we want to find out what happens next. So you would connect that unwillingness to confront the potentially catastrophic and apocal challenges faced by a use of a nuclear weapon to the type of solipsism and unwillingness to engage in a strategic empathizing project? Is that what you would connect it to? Oh, I connect it to, to two things. First, there's no real debate or understanding among the public about what U.S. nuclear doctrine is. I'll give you two good examples. First, let me make a statement. So Americans do not understand that the United States is pledged to use nuclear weapons first in response to attacks not on the United States itself, but on response to attacks on our allies, whether it's Japan or in Europe. Um, and I, I think during, if we go back to the debate on the uh, deployment of intermediate range nuclear forces in Europe that took place in the late 70s and early 80s, Washington Post took a poll and it found that um, some 82% of Americans who were surveyed, supposedly a scientifically representative sample, believed that the United States would only use nuclear weapons in response to an attack on the American, nuclear attack on the American homeland. And that's just not true. Anybody who knows anything about NATO doctrine during the Cold War knows that we knew that uh, because of Soviet conventional superiority, that we would not be able to stop them with uh, conventional forces alone, and we would be forced to tactical and then intermediate range nuclear weapons in order to uh, prevent uh, a defeat for the United States and NATO. So, I mean, it's astounding that people don't understand the kinds of commitments we have. I'm, go back. I was, I was in Japan in 2000, I think it was 2010, during um, a crisis that uh, occurred over the Senkaku or Diao Islands, depending on whether you use the Japanese or Chinese name for them, but they're currently administered by Japan. 
And you may remember that uh, a, a group of Japanese fishing, pardon me, Chinese fishing trawlers got perilously close to Japanese territorial waters and the Japanese Coast Guard sent out a cutter to push them away out of Japan's territorial waters around the Senkaku Islands. And one of the fishing trawler captains, Chinese fishing trawler captains, sort of went berserk and he rammed the Japanese Coast Guard cutter. And we were in Tokyo at the time on a, on a visit sponsored by the Sasakawa Peace Foundation. So we were talking to a lot of people in the Japanese foreign and defense policy establishment. This was a big crisis. And I remember at the time following up, both Secretary of State Clinton and Secretary of Defense Gates made statements that the Senkaku Islands came within the purview of the U.S.-Japan so-called Mutual Security Treaty, which obligates us to defend Japan, but obligates Japan to do nothing. Um, they basically reaffirmed that the United States is in a position to go to war over the Senkaku Islands, which I can't imagine, you know, they may be important to Japan, but why they're important to us eludes me. All right, so people don't understand the nature of the commitments we made. And then let's go to what happened, um, I think it was 1987 at a uh, conference of the International Institute for Strategic Studies that was held in Brussels. And these things are supposed to be you know, Chatham House rules, they're off the record, you can't quote people. Well, Henry Kissinger made a statement at this conference, and the statement was, I can almost quote it verbatim. He said, and this was published the next day on the front page of the New York Times, in complete contravention of Chatham House rules. Uh, Kissinger said, don't you Europeans keep asking us to make statements that we cannot possibly mean, and that if we did mean, we would not want to execute. Quote, unquote, speaking about nuclear weapons, I think I misspoke. I think this conference was 1977. And so it was just after he left office. He was only out of office for a couple of years. And carried still a lot of weight because of his, his service, as Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, and as someone who wrote a book about nuclear weapons when he was a Harvard professor. So you think that we would want to discuss that issue, the nature of our commitments and the risks uh, of nuclear conflict that, that may drag us into? But we don't. I mean, Kissinger made this comment, and there was no follow-up. It was basically suppressed just like the Washington Post poll. So the elite, the foreign policy establishment elite doesn't want to discuss this issue, and the public doesn't really know about this issue. Um, but the commitments are there, the risks are there, the dangers are there, and it's something we really should talk about. Uh, I, I agree. Potential Armageddon should be <laughs> on the on the docket. Um, as we come to the end here, maybe we could return to Ukraine and the U.S. And, and maybe I'd like to hear, what do you think 
about the state of Ukraine. We're recording this in mid to late June 2023. What do you think about where we are with Ukraine and what do you think potential risks are and what do you think this indicates more broadly speaking if we're talking about the U.S. role in the world or the international system writ large? Well, I think this, first of all, this is really important to make the connection. There is a connection. There's a connection and Biden administration officials have stated it, maybe not so much on the record, but certainly you can see the off-the-record quotes, is a lot of what's driving U.S. policy in Ukraine is China. The idea that we need to show China that we will stand up to quote-unquote aggression, and if we're willing to stand up to support Ukraine, that the Chinese should draw the conclusion that we will stand up if they use military force to reincorporate Taiwan into into uh, the People's Republic of China, um, I think, and this goes back to I think I made this point a little bit earlier in our conversation. So I'm not sure that American policymakers really give credence to two things. Um, one is the fact that Russia could legitimately feel threatened by NATO expansion. And the fact that that the U.S. would not rule out expanding NATO to incorporate Ukraine, I mean, this really was and remains a major concern in Moscow. Um, And also um, the idea that by stepping up incrementally our assistance to Ukraine militarily, um, that we could be increasing the risks of a conflict between the United States and NATO and Russia itself, a direct conflict. Um, I think we should worry about that. I think the, you know, again, we've seen the, the U.S. go through these sort of stages um, well, when the Russians first invaded Ukraine, well, maybe we need to give Ukraine uh, anti-tank uh, weapons. Um, and then it was, well, maybe we need to give them howitzers, modern artillery pieces. And then maybe we need to give them HIMARS. And, you know, at each stage, it's, oh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. But then we decide to do that. And then it's, tanks, and now F-16s. So we've consistently escalated our commitment to Ukraine. And so what happens, uh, as best I can tell, and I, I think nobody really knows, but as best I can tell from reading what's available in the open source media, um, Ukrainians are having a pretty tough go of it uh, with their counteroffensive. I don't think we're likely to see them win a crushing victory. I think we're likely to see sort of a prolonged attritional conflict. Uh, they have do not enjoy air superiority. The Russians, for the first time in this conflict, are bringing their air power in. Um, everybody knows that the Russians have done a very meticulous job of constructing defensive fortifications, entrenching themselves. Uh, it's very hard 
to win that kind of a battle, particularly if you don't have air superiority, which the Ukrainians don't. So I don't see that there's going to be a counteroffensive leading to some kind of decisive Ukrainian victory. Although, you know, again, I'm going to qualify that by saying none of us who are in on the intelligence that's heard behind closed doors in the government really know what's what the situation is. But again, um, you can conjure scenarios uh, that um, make you worry about the risk of escalation. And you can also ask, I suppose we should ask ourselves, well, what happens in U.S. and NATO decision-making circles if it looks like the Ukrainians are not going to win a clear victory? Now, we've committed our prestige and our credibility to this conflict. So are we willing to walk away without uh, the Ukrainians uh, clearly prevailing? I don't know the answer to those questions, but I think people should be asking those questions. Chris Lane, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for asking me to be on. I enjoyed being with you.